You're broken down and tired Living life on a merry-go-round Bet you can fight the fighter But I see it in you We're gonna walk it out Move mountains We're gonna walk it out Move mountains I'll rise up I'll rise like the day I'll rise up I'll rise unafraid I'll rise up And I'll do it a thousand times again I'll rise up I'll rise like the waves I'll rise up In spite of the aches I'll rise up And I'll do it a thousand times again For you so tired and it feels like it's getting hard to breathe and I know you feel like dying but I promise you will take the world to its feet and move mountains we will walk it out move mountains I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day, I'll rise up, I'll rise unafraid, I'll rise up, and I'll do it a thousand times again, and for you. Rise up again. 
My goodness. That was world class, wasn't it, folks? That was awesome. What did you say? No. No, I will not. I will not. Oh, all right. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, ladies. All the best to you for today. I, I Don't you feel sorry when you're driving to church and you, you look at those sort of mobile flower mongers on the way and you see a bunch of losers lined up who have forgotten? Yeah, and, and you think, yeah, ha, 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 idiots. My wife bought my mother's Mother's Day present weeks ago. I got it covered. Ladies, all of you, I always thought ladies hoped that their biggest dream was the perfect man. Is, is that accurate? No? Yeah, I know. I've actually found out that it's actually to get thin by eating cupcakes. It's true. It's true. Did, did you not hear about the lady who was going through her wardrobe in the morning and she said to her friends later that day, my swimsuit said to me, you need to go to the gym. But my tracky dack said, no, girl, you're good. <laughs> Maybe I should not preach and just keep working the room. Hey? <laughs> that, that little uh, video reminds us that we are one church in two locations. And if you don't know me, my name is Mark and I'm from that other location, Collingwood Park, where they would just about be having a prayer meeting right now. And that prayer meeting would be so intense that it would be registering a blip on the radar screens out at Amberley. They'll say, oh, there's a disturbance in Collingwood Park. What's going on? We better send a bomber. You know. So that's what's going on down there. And I'll nip down there and see how things are going a little bit later on. So it's Mother's Day. And I find myself surprisingly in the pulpit. And I was thinking, as I was thinking about Mother's Day, you think about one thing, don't you? You think about your mum. You think about your mum. And for some reason, it popped into my head the first time I ever saw my mother cry. And it was because of me. So I was about four years old. And and you've got to remember, this is like 1964. Men wore their hair in a particular way in those days. Oily. And, And I found a little tin of substance in our yard. It actually said, sewing machine oil. But to a four-year-old who can't read, it said, stuff you put in your hair. (laughs) And so I poured it onto my hands and I ran it through my hair and I managed to find something that resembled a comb. It was actually one of my father's horse combs and that, but that worked. And I, and I combed my hair, and, and it was slicker than snot on a doorknob. I tell you, it was, it was incredible. And I went, and I presented myself to my mum. And she broke down. And then she put, take, took me lovingly to the laundry basin and washed my hair. A little bit more vigorously than normal, but that's how it goes. Motherhood. Sometimes it can seem like a stroll through an enchanted forest and other times it seems like hell itself has made its residence in your lounge room. <laughs> the ups and downs, the hurly-burly of raising kids. We have, we have mothers of, at various stages. We have grandmothers, great-grandmothers, we have new mothers and we have mothers-to-be in the room. 
And so motherhood is in our face today, folks. And even though sometimes you know, your kids might get too hard, it might be just a bit rough, in the best of times and in the worst of times, God has something for us. Isn't that right? Come on, don't mind if you shout me down. God has something for us. Psalm 23 says, He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In the presence of my enemies would have to be one of the worst of times, wouldn't it? And yet still, God has something there for us. He has something for us always, at all stages. In the worst of circumstances, on the worst of days, in the worst of times, God has something for us because he loves us. I want to just, I found a mother scripture. Don't know if it's actually relevant to what I want to say before, but it was a really good one. It says Isaiah 49, verse 14 to 16, says this, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Verse 15, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. See, in the unlikely, unlikely event, that a mother would forget her child. God says his love is stronger than that. And we need to know that. This morning, I want to, I want to take... I'm not going to give you advice on motherhood. Let me tell you that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not a mother and I've, I've been a party to seeing some great ones, but I'm not about to give you advice. I wouldn't dare. But what I'm going to do to give it a Mother's Day type of theme is to take three mothers from the Old Testament and, and sort of dissect a part of their lives and see how that in them is illustrated there's symbolism of something that God has for us. And, uh, and I want to start that off right now. They're not your mainstream mothers, they're, but in their own way, they show us something, they illustrate something. They're not apple pie A-type mums, but they all did something worthy of being recorded in scripture they were three tough gutsy women if not a little bit seedy at times so the first one i want you to turn to hosea chapter three use that bible app that uh that has the the rustling of pages to make me feel better around about 700 years before Jesus was born, this is the backstory of, of the first mother, around about 700 years before Jesus was born, in the northern kingdom of Israel, there was a young prophet emerging. He was rising to prominence. His name was Hosea. It was a, a prosperous time in the kingdom of Israel. And generally what happens when Israel prospered is they got their eyes off God. They got their eyes on the material things that were abundant in their lives. And they just got off track and started worshipping other gods. Basically, they just went totally off the rails in good times and, and got into all sorts of debauchery. And, and, uh, and God is using this particular prophet to, to call them back. But in the middle of all that, he gives Hosea a most bizarre assignment. He says to Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. That's just what everyone wants to hear, isn't it? And you can just see Hosea having, having a double take. Oh, sorry? What? But God says, no, I want you to marry a prostitute and have kids with her. So Hosea goes down to the red light district and he picks one out. And her name is Goma. Now that presents a problem to people of my generation 
because we immediately think of a TV series called Goma Pile, yeah, in which Goma Pile was, a, was this big, tall, awkward farm boy who joined the Marines. And so we see Goma as a man's name. But this wasn't a man. This was a girl, a woman of ill repute, a streetwalker, a hooker, all of those sort of stereotypical names that we would attach to a prostitute in that day. So Hosea marries her. He settles down. She settles down to domestic life. She tries to straighten up and fly right. It's difficult. But she has this straying streak in her. And they have three kids. They have three kids called Jezreel, Lo Ruhama, and Lo Amai. And this gives Hosea his first clue that not all is well. Because those names could be construed to mean mine, not sure, and not mine. I mean, the first, the first two have sort of got dark hair, dark complexion, and they look a bit like Hosea, but the third one's got blonde hair and blue eyes. And, that, and he's, yeah, he's really suspicious. Something's going on here. So mine, not sure, and not mine. You can, you can look that up. The, not my kin is the name, that, is the what low am I means. So... See, Goma can't help herself. She has got this something within her and she has taken herself out of the family and put herself back into the old lifestyle. She started going out at night and Hosea, Hosea knows where she's going. You know the old song, she know, he knows where she's going when she's leaving. She's heading for the cheating side of town. But all you Eagles fans... Anyway, she's gone downtown to the wrong side of the track. She's found herself a pimp and she's back on the game out on the boulevard looking for clientele. And then God speaks to Hosea again and that's where we pick up the story. Hosea chapter 3 verse 1 said, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. So he asks Hosea to go again. He's already gone once. He's married her. She's come home, she's tried, she can't, and now she's back in the old lifestyle, and he says, go again. But why does he tell him to do that? It's the next verse, next sentence, just after the comma. It says, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who now look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. And, and that's what's happened. That is an illustration of how God's love for us unfolds. That must have been some trip for a man of God to go downtown to the red light district in the, in the sleazy underbelly of the city. How awkward and messy would that search have been for Hosea to go again? But he was driven. He had to go and do it. God had told him. And that was God illustrating to, to him and to us the kind of love that he has for Israel. Go again, Hosea. And so Hosea goes again. And he, he, the next verse says, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley I don't know what that is but he had to pay for her although she was already his he had to go and pay a price he had to go to whoever it was that owned her then and pay a price to possess her once again and that's the part that's the part where we go hmm that reminds me of something what does it remind you of? Other men had bought her, but Hosea pays the price to get her back. Other men had bought her to use her, but Hosea 
brought her to heal her. Even though we are supposed to be, we were supposed to be his treasured possession, God still sent Jesus to buy us back. Even though we were his, he created us, he loved us, we didn't pay him the attention that was due. And so God sent Jesus to take away the blockage, to take away the roadblocks and allow us to be in his presence again. Says, no, verse 4 says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. So they're out, of, they're out of fellowship. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek their Lord, their God, and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Fear the Lord and his goodness. Do we understand the goodness of God? People have different perspectives on the goodness of God. They shall fear God and his goodness in the latter days. See, the goodness of God is basic. If we have that, if we understand that, that can frame our whole worldview of God. It can frame and dictate how we walk with him. If we think that God is this narky magistrate who wants to deal out punishment every time we stumble, we're going to have a certain idea of God and we're going to walk with him according to that. If we see him as this uptight accountant who keeps a ledger of our sins and our wrongdoings, we're going to walk a certain way. If we see him as a good God who has crafted out a purpose and a destiny for us and who loves us unconditionally and extravagantly, we're going to see him a certain way, aren't we? We're going to see him a certain way. And that will frame the way that we walk with him. Is he a quick rebuker or a hard punisher or is he the loving shepherd? I put it to you that he's a loving shepherd. He's the good, good father. We, some people see God as, as someone who will give you sickness to make you a better person. No, the other end of the continuum says God is this loving father who has a plan and a purpose and who wants you to walk in that, wants you to be the best version of you that you can possibly be. And that's where we find the goodness of God in that. Let me just read you a quick verse from 1, uh, 1 John 4. It says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. Whatever stage of your Christian walk you might be on this morning, you might be someone who doesn't normally go to church. You're here as a particular favor to someone on Mother's Day. You might have an idea that, that God is a tough God who wants to just pummel you every time you, you make a mistake. Well, that's not him. He is someone at whatever stage you are of your Christian walk, even if you don't know him, he is in pursuit of you. He is in pursuit. He's going down to the red light district to look for you, to drag you out of that life and offer you something better. That's where he is. He's in pursuit. God is a pursuing God. It's like people say, oh, I can't get to God. I can't get there. He's not talking. He is always in pursuit. He always wants you to have more of him. And that will actually give you a lens to look at your Christian walk through. It will frame your Christian walk and how walking with him has worked out in your life. God invites us to experience his goodness. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, taste is an experience. And so you experience that the Lord is God. And then see, seeing is perception. What you, you see, what you actually experience. So you taste first, you experience, and then you see. 
that the Lord is good. So I don't know where you are this morning or how you frame God, but you need to know that he is a good God and he is pursuing you. He is, he is on his horse and he's after you, like that knight in shining armor. And so this morning we see Goma as an illustration of that. I mean, she may have been a seedy woman who couldn't get it together. But in the end, Hosea brings her back. And as far as we know, she knuckles down and the marriage goes on. It's not, it's not actually recorded. But Goma is our first mother. That's her. She is the mother of redemption. You don't find too many people calling their little daughters Goma these days. But our next mother... She figures prominently in the names of, of young ladies these days. In fact, my daughter's second name is, is named after this particular mother. So she's our next Old Testament mother cropping up. And here is her backstory. Her name is Leah. I'm on a roll, even when I don't mean to be funny. Here's her backstory Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham is you know, the, the father of many nations. God has called him. And Jacob is running from his brother back to his grandfather's homeland. And he finds himself among his relatives. And he goes to a well one day and he meets his cousin, Rachel. When he meets Rachel, he just lays eyes on her and he is absolutely smitten. And so one thing leads to another. And he cuts a deal with her, with her father, Laban, who is his uncle. Laban means wheeler dealer in the Hebrew. You're not sure, aren't you? I'm just kidding. It doesn't really. <laughs> and Laban and, and, and uh, Jacob make a deal for Jacob to marry Rachel in exchange for seven years of hard labor, working for, for Laban on his, uh, on his farm, running his sheep. But Laban had two daughters, and Rachel was the younger one of them. Leah was the older. Now, the, the Bible, the New International Version says that Rachel was beautiful with a lovely figure. Now, you've got to remember that this is Scripture inspired by God. She's beautiful with a lovely figure. I would like to know the specifications of what heaven deems to be a lovely... I mean, is it this? I don't I don't know. So I would like to know what heaven deems to be a lovely figure. I mean, you know, just curious. And it says that Leah had weak eyes. Now, I don't know what that means. Maybe she had those, like, eyes that follow you around the room, you know. <laughs> or, or maybe she was cross-eyed or something like that. Or maybe, maybe she was just crazy-eyed, you know, wild-eyed. However you translate it, I don't think it's complimentary. Anyway, what happens is, on the wedding night, now they must have been plastered at this wedding reception. They must have been absolutely off their faces drunk. On the wedding night, Jacob thinks he's marrying Rachel, and her dad, at the last minute, slips Leah into the bedchamber. And if you read the New International Version, it's, it, it's really quite funny. It says, in the morning, there was Leah. Yeah. That's, that's what it says. Anyway, anyway, Jacob is absolutely filthy and he goes, to, he goes to Laban and he crunches another deal to work for Rachel. 
uh, work seven years and then marry Rachel. And, uh, and that, that's how it all works out. But anyway, we, we go back to Leah. Leah realizes that she's not Jacob's first choice. And so she begins to search for identity. She begins to see that the mess she's in and God opens up the situation and gives her favor in the way of extreme fertility. So Genesis chapter 29, and we're going to read a few verses, says this. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now that might sound like a, like a, like a genealogy. It's pretty boring. It's just like an account of births. But in it is contained Leah's journey toward identity. She has a first son, and she calls him Simi. She has a second son, and she calls him Hear Me. She has a third son. She calls him Accept Me, and still nothing happens. And so she has a fourth son, and she calls him I give up. I'm just going to praise God. Judah is, means praise. And so this is her journey towards identity. She's trying to grab identity through her, her, her husband first and then through her ability to produce sons. And then finally in the end she says, it's not coming that way. I'm going to find identity in God. And she says, I'm just going to praise him. She says, calls one, see me, hear me, accept me, doesn't work. So she says, I give up. And she says, I'm going to press in to him. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to conceive. It's not about approval and it's not about what we can produce. It's not about achievement. It's about connection with God. For everyone who has known the pain of being unwanted for everyone for whom something else was chosen ahead of you god has a way of selecting what people reject isn't that right maybe jacob didn't want leah but god wanted leah when she's saying god when is my time god is saying i see you and you're not being left out and he didn't leave her out if you look into the the genealogy that it's the birth of Jesus in Matthew 1. You'll see that it was Abraham, it was Isaac, it was Jacob, it was Levi. It was Leah's son that was in the line that produced Jesus. Leah will be remembered as being in the Messianic line. Jesus came from Judah, line of the tribe of Judah. He came from him and that was the one that... The, Leah thought she was the one that, that Jacob didn't want. So you've got to understand that God chose you. He chose you before the foundation of the earth. You don't need the approval of anyone. You don't need an approval of, of, of a committee to say that you're, you're good enough. God chose you before the foundation of the earth. He knew you in Jesus before he lost you in Adam. 
and that's, that's where you stand with him. Your identity doesn't come out of anything that you're able to achieve or do. You see on Facebook and, and Instagram every, t- every time, like you, you see people who include like their occupation or something in the title of their name. Like I follow a lot of runners on Instagram and they say, blah, 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 runner. Like it's part of their identity. What they do is part of the, their identity. Your identity isn't vocational. It comes from the Father. You can know all about God and know all about the scriptures about him, talk about identity, who you are. You can know all about that and and be able to memorize it and recite it. But until you actually meet him and connect with him and in the encounter and experience his presence, does it become part of the fabric of your being? So we find Leah trying to find identity in the things that she's doing, the things that she's doing, the the children that she's producing, the attachment to her husband, which doesn't come. And so she just folds herself into praise. And then she has someone who gives her identity and, 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 and stows her in the line that produces the Messiah. In the encounter, when you encounter him, your perception opens up. And that's Leah. She's the mother of identity. If you don't hear many girls being called uh, Goma and Leah, well, you don't hear many, at least Australian girls, being called the next one. Our next mother is Yoshebed, the mother of Moses. You might know her as Jochebed. Yoshebed sounds infinitely more Hebrew and feminine. It just does. Jochebed sounds like a boxer from Glasgow. Yeah. And besides, Cecil B. DeMille in the Ten Commandments called her Yoshebed. So I'm going to. The Bible actually suggests that Yoshebed is the granddaughter of Leah, the one who we've just talked about, and that she is the mother of Moses. And we pick her, pick her name up and her story in Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Let's read it together. Actually, we'll, yeah, we'll start at verse 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife the daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitched, and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the riverbank. Well-known story. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Well, what would be done to him was that the daughter of Pharaoh came along and found him and then said, I want to... I'm not going to let this baby die. We're going, to, we're going to keep this baby and bring him into the palace. The sister who was afar off came close and said, hey, I know where I can get you a wet nurse. And she says, okay, good, do that. And so she, she gets, takes Moses back to his own mother who nurses him. And when he's finally weaned, he goes into the palace and he grows up in Pharaoh's palace. What happened here is we had a woman of great faith who believed in God, who believed in the deliverer to come, that they whispered about in the, in the brick fields of Goshen. And she believed in that, and that she believed that if she could preserve her son, a deliverer would come. She didn't probably know that he was the one. But she, she saves him and keeps him alive, and he ends up in the palace. What she's actually done is launched her son into purpose, 
probably unknowingly at the time, but that's what she's done. Because later, when God would come and want to tabernacle himself with the children of Israel, when he wanted a place to live, he gave Moses the specifications of this tabernacle, this tent, this elaborate, ornate tent where God would dwell amongst his people. When he gave Moses the specifications, Moses was probably the only Israelite who would have understood that because he grew up in a palace. He understood that sort of thing. The Israelites of the day, the whole, all, every generation of them grew up making bricks and building pyramids and building cities and that sort of thing. They, they hardly had the clothes that they wore on their back. They were, they were running around in the mud and, and in filth. They would not have understood the, the level of workmanship that had to go into building the tabernacle, but Moses did. And so he went through this process only because had great faith and took a radical step of action years down the track that would come home to roost she released him into his purpose Yoshebed is the mother of destiny see that's why the first two came first we need to understand our redemption we need to understand where we stand with God and we need to understand that we have identity through him and because of that, we can walk in our God-given destiny. God has a destiny for us. It is, it is a place for us to walk. It's a purpose for us. And as I said before, it's not vocational. You know what our destiny is? We think our destiny is to, you know, that we're called to be a, a missionary or a pastor or, or a teacher or a solicitor or a plumber or something like that. Our destiny is not vocational. Our destiny is found in the, in the book of First Peter says you are a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession and that's you're that whatever your occupation is whatever you are wherever you are you are part of a royal priesthood and don't think that it's just about going to heaven a royal priesthood starts now it starts the minute you meet God it means that what you do is you represent him in the earth that you are his agent you are his the agent of his best intentions that you are one someone who stewards his creation you bear his image in the earth and that may work out in a number of ways it may result in you being a pastor or a missionary or a teacher or a plumber or something like that but basically underlying all of that is that you are part of a royal priesthood and that isn't just now it goes crosses the line of death and into eternity and we are that now we are that in eternity eternal life as God has it for us starts now and just keeps going when you cross the line of death nothing changes we think we all say when I get to heaven what do we think we're going to do when we get to heaven do we think we're going to sit on a cloud remember that uh, far side comic with the guy sitting on a cloud looking around and thinking saying oh gee I wish I'd brought a magazine no no, we will in eternity. The Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth and a physical existence for us in a resurrected body. So we continue just then to be a royal priesthood, continue to steward his creation, continue to bear his image, continue to be the agents of his best intention. That's the royal priesthood, folks. That's what it is. And that's what we're called to, every one of us. No matter how you feel, every one of us is called to that. That's Yoshebed. She's the mother of destiny. I'd like all the mothers to stand. I'd like to pray for you. In fact, if you're a female, 
stand up. I just want to pray for you. Ladies, I, I have news for you. Your husband, partner, boyfriend has nothing to do with your completeness. And motherhood, high calling though it is, isn't your ultimate destiny. God has a yet higher calling for you, and that's to be part of the royal priesthood. You are priestesses and princesses. Turn to the person next to you and say that. I'm a priestess and I'm a princess. Go on, go ahead, do that. You're in this earth to have dominion and to steward his creation, to have purpose, authority, and authority in the earth, earth and release his power and be agents of redemption, to be rivers in the badlands, to take his gospel into places it, it hasn't been heard. That is you. Priestesses and princesses, that is you this morning. You need to make that your confession. Yeah? You're going to do that? Some of you are looking a bit doubtful about it, but you need to make that your confession. I'm going to pray for you. Father, I thank you for every female in this house. We thank you for girls, young ladies, older ladies. Lord, we thank you for each one of them. Lord, we thank you for what they bring to our house, Lord God. Father, today we release identity to them, Lord God. We release identity, we release the identity you have, Lord God, an understanding and a knowledge that they are part of the royal priesthood that they are indeed priestesses and princesses and that that should be the fabric of their being and that walk with you will come out of that, will be framed by that today and every day, we pray in Jesus' name.